Well, welcome to New Year's Day. I know this is not a surprise for you. I'm glad to see everyone here, those of us, those of you in here in person and those of us joining us online. My name is Todd Misfelt, as the other Todd said. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Community Church, and it's my, my pleasure to be speaking about the Lord with you today. Now, for most of us, Christmas is behind us. Presents have been bought, opened, Family has gathered, celebrated, and returned home. Today, you know, it's a day to take a deep breath and to relax. Now, some of us will watch some parades on TV or maybe camped out in front of the, the TV to watch more, more games and to eat more snacks than we ever really need. It's also a chance, traditionally, to take stock of our prior year of 2022, what went well, what maybe could have gone better, and you'll see talk about doing New Year's resolutions about what we should do better in 2023. But that's not everyone. Some people will look forward to this year with a sense of hurt. Maybe there are loved ones that are no longer with them. And still others may be facing yet another year of strained relationships. That's, we all don't carry the same burden going into 2023. But today can be a day of reflection if we want it to be. But it's also a day to accept that no matter what comes, becomes for us in 2023, that we are not alone. That we have a God who is with us all the time, every second, every minute, every day, every month, 20 and 2023, 20, and the rest of the year. And that is something that we can depend on. When going with the, the time of reflection, I can imagine the Apostle John sitting down to reflect on what he wanted to say in his account of Jesus' life. You know, what lessons did he want to include, and which of these did he want to emphasize? Now, John's purpose was not necessarily to write what was important to him, but to lay out what would best communicate who Jesus is and why his audience should call Jesus Lord. Now, scholars think that John was the last of the four Gospels to be written, that Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that John probably knew about these, but he must have wanted to add something different from his perspective on what he had witnessed in Jesus' life and his understanding of who Jesus was. So with that in mind, John took his, his pen in hand and sat down to write his prologue or introduction to his gospel. And John is, you know, kind of in keeping with today of being a little reflective. John was kind of reflective as he wrote this prologue. His, his language is almost poetic. He refers to people and events in symbolic names as opposed to giving them their, their, their proper names. So today, I want to examine the prologue of John, which is in John chapter 1, verses 1 to 18. And through that, pick out what John thought was important and noteworthy to examine. And I think it's fitting that we do this on this day of reflection. So let's begin this by reading the passage. Verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, 
And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness testifying concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor human decision, nor a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me, because he was before me. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who himself is God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. So John begins kind of poetically, doesn't he? There's there's lots of, of imagery in here. And he starts off in verse 1 by talking about the word, whatever that is, right? And and he describes the word in three different ways. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. Now, this type of repetition is very, um, you find this a lot in Jewish poetry, where you take a block of text to describe one thing and you, you repeat something and you add a little bit more. And so in this block, we, he starts off talking about the word and then builds up that, well, the word has something to do with God. And the word is both with God and is God. Well, how can that be, right? We don't experience that. I I cannot be my friend and be with my friend at the same time, right? Physically, it's impossible. Well, in John's prologue, we have to wait a little bit, maybe to understand what, to learn more about the word and maybe what this, this conundrum is. Now, a spoiler alert, that the word is Jesus Christ. When you first read this, you may not gather that, but, but that's the hint, and that helps a lot in reading it. Well, back to John's description. So he says the word was in the beginning. Now, for someone who has read the Bible, the words in the beginning sound familiar, don't they? 
It's the first phrase in the first book of the entire Bible. The the Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 reads, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, biblical writers will often tie what they're saying by, by using a word or phrase that occurs previously in Scripture. And what that does is that adds to what they're describing at at that moment. So in this case, John is deliberately tying in the beginning, in his prologue, to Genesis and the creation. So he talks about the word, but, I mean, if you think about it, the words words have power. And if you go back to Genesis, words have the most power of anything in the entire universe. And words have power because of who says them. When I was a child, we we had a phrase that you'd say, if someone was picking on you, you would say, oh, sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Anyone ever say that? You, you You would say that if someone was picking on you, maybe they're calling your names, And you just wanted to say, nope, I'm not going to let that get me upset because words will just bounce off of me. It's not like you're hitting me with a stick or a stone. Well, when I grew older, I found out that wasn't exactly true. You know, it depends on who says the words. Because as I said before, words are the power of the person who says them. And we know this from relationships. The loving words from a parent can help us feel loved, comforted, and protected. Harsh words from a parent can hurt us deeply and be something that we will never forget. And the words, I'm leaving you from a significant other or a spouse will hurt us deeply. You know, you'll never, perhaps never get over that emotional hurt and may change you forever. And even in a more public standpoint, when I was on jury duty a few years ago, I was struck by the power of the judge's words. You know, if someone was disrupting the courtroom, the judge would say, remove that person from the court. And the big, burly uh, bailiff would get up and go over and physically escort that person from the room. And at the end of the trial, if the defendant was found guilty, the judge would declare him guilty and sentence him to prison, and off that person would go. The judge's words have power. And even today, a president or a king with their words can start a war in which hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of people will be killed. And in John's time, the emperor's word was law. Whatever he said, that's what happened in his kingdom. And we see the same thing in Genesis. Words are how God creates. In verse 3, God said, let there be light, and there was light. In verse 6, God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water, And there was a vault. And the pattern continues until day six, when God says, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. Through the word, God speaks and creates. Through the word, God creates us. We owe our very existence 
to the word. They said, words of power, the power of the one who says them. Now, Christians recognize God's words in the Bible as powerful. We, we give authority to those words. We, they direct our lives. Now, it's not because the words themselves have power. They're not like a, a magic phrase that you, you say in the right order and things magically appear or they, they disappear. No. We, we value neither, neither the form of the words, a particular language, or their exact order, or their, their spelling. Because after all, Christians have Bibles in many different languages and, and translations. No, we value what is communicated by the words because they are God's words. They are given to us by God himself. Now, God's words not only have power in the beginning... But they also have power for us today. They keep our beliefs in line with God's, God's instruction. So on my own, I have nothing worthwhile to say to, say to you. I, I have the worthwhile, the knowledge of Todd, the wisdom of Todd, how little of that there is. But when I speak, I look at the Bible. I compare to what I say with what God says in the Bible. Then I speak with wisdom, and then I should be listened to. So when John poetically writes that Jesus is the word, don't dismiss the word as powerless, as insignificant. Don't don't skip over that first verse. And when John talks about the word and then mentions in the beginning, he's making that tie to Genesis 1 and saying that the word has all the power and is the prime force behind everything that's around us, that the word is worth listening to. And the word will tell us what is true and what we should do. John continues with, he was with God in the beginning, verse 2. Now, in the original Greek, it's a little bit more specific than, than in English. It's more, this one was with God. I think he's saying that to be sure that there is no doubt that this word was, has always existed. It was existing before creation. And John continues to refine who he's talking about by building upon his kind of poetic style, by building upon these words in creation, that through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. So again, he's, he's saying that this one was not just a witness to creation. He was a participant. And this is, is critical because it, it says who Jesus is. A related question we don't often ask ourselves is, what do we owe our creator? And the answer to that depends on who we think our creator is. In our scientific age, we often speak of a world that is made up of many processes that scientists study and observe and measure, and that we are a result of one of those processes, according to science. But there's no one behind it, and you can't owe anything to a process. So with this mindset, we don't owe anything to anyone. Our job is only to react to the world around us and do what we want to do, what gives us pleasure. We seek happiness. 
Well, the Bible speaks to this already. And, you know, the author of Ecclesiastes puts it that just going after your own happiness is like chasing after the wind. It's a pursuit that you can never really achieve. And if you catch it, even if you can catch it, it's like trying to catch the wind. It just disappears in your hands. To be clear, that is not the creation that John is describing. But we see this around us. I, I must admit, I've, kind of, I've been guilty of that in the past. When, you know, we have a pretty, many of us have a pretty easy life, right? We feel that we are successful in life. We think that we are good people. Well, at least that's what those of us around us will, will tell us. We believe that we, are, we behave in a manner consistent with society and that we don't owe anyone anything. After all, we, we earn what we have, right? Well, I used to think that. Life is good as long as you don't think too deeply or long about it. Unfortunately, success is a temporary state. It's not necessarily permanent. So I had been attributing my success to myself, my talent, my strength, my skill. But when success began to elude me, then what? I began to realize that, no, the world was not about just me. That I was not in control. That perhaps there was more luck in my success than there was skill on my part. And perhaps I wasn't as self-sufficient as I thought. Now, someday, if you feel independent and successful, you may join the ranks of those who realize that they need help, that they are not alone, that their actual life comes from someone else. Our life comes from our creator. And it's to our creator that we owe more than just lip service, more than an occasional thought, more than an hour a week on Sunday mornings, perhaps. We owe our creator, Jesus, everything. And that's what John's gospel is about. John's talking about who Jesus is in his prologue and then goes into much more detail in the rest of his gospel on what we owe Jesus. Now, there are still some people around who say that eh, we don't need God. We should be free to establish our own purpose in life. That's kind of the mentality of the general society nowadays, I think. Well, the prophet Isaiah likens God to a potter. That's one who makes pottery. And us to the clay which the potter shapes into something useful. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 16, Isaiah writes, You have everything backward should the potter be thought of as clay should what is made say of its maker you didn't make me should what is shaped say of the one who shaped it he doesn't understand you know that was written what some 2500 years ago but man that still applies today doesn't it you can see people wanting saying that but the point in John's gospel is we owe Jesus everything. And that will be John's argument. But in his prologue, John is describing a God who is engaged in the world, that all life is in him. Our life 
is in him. Verse 4, in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. Now the verbs in verse 4, you see, is written was, and to us English speakers that kind of implies something that was done in the past and it's over with. But if you go to the original Greek, those verbs are in the imperfect tense, which means that it's something that happened in the past, it started in the past, but it's not yet complete. So it's like another way of putting it that might be more exact is in him was and is still life. And that life was and is still the light of all mankind. Jesus still nurtures life within us today. And without the light, we cannot find our way. The light shows us the way. Well, later in John's gospel, Jesus says that even when he is no longer with us, that he will give us someone, the Holy Spirit, who will lead us to God. In John 14, starting in verse 15, Jesus says, If you love me, keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. The Spirit of truth. See, I learned that I needed help. I needed a light to live a good life, that the light lights my path through life so that I can make the right decisions and honor God. Otherwise, I found myself wandering in the darkness, listening to voices, and someone say, oh, go this way, but then get another voice, no, 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 go that way, until I, I did not know where I was going. I was lost. I need the true light to show me where I should go. And that's why the poetry of John is so meaningful, that Jesus is that light. And this light shows us the divine. And Jesus will himself describe himself as the light of the world later in John's gospel. In fact, John mentions it some 20 times in the prologue, the word light. Now, again, although John, this is his introduction, he doesn't go into a lot of detail here, but in this case, John has a foundation in verse 4 that he will then use to tie these other references of light together. Well, so far in John's prologue, verses 1 to 4, we have John's reflection on who Jesus is. And John's describing the many layers of the way we can look at Jesus as it relates to each of us. Jesus is the word which he listened to. The creator, he's God of heaven and earth. He made us and gives us life. And lastly, he is the light to all humanity, each and every one of us. So we think, if we think about it, we owe Jesus quite a bit. And he says, what? we owe when we realize this for a little later in his gospel that right now is just kind of stating the summary, the facts. Well, in verse 5, John continues with another transition. He introduces conflict into his gospel. Verse 5, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. So he introduces the darkness 
Darkness does not coexist with light. Darkness is in conflict with the light. And he writes that the darkness has not overcome the light. And when he says that, he means that it won't ever have a victory over light. And as John, as he said, John's doing a foundation in his gospel for light. Light often appears in the Old Testament as well. For example, in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, Isaiah writes, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. That is God. Now, for those of you familiar with Genesis, you know that the end of the creation narrative, that the first people have a choice. They can choose to enjoy what they have with God, the strolls in the evening through the Garden of Eden, or they can choose to want to know everything like God, to know good and evil. This is the darkness. This is independence from God. So we all have a choice to make. We can choose to acknowledge that we are the clay which the potter has formed into a pot. Or we can choose to tell the potter that he knows nothing that we know better. And when we reject God, as I did at one point, God does not throw his hands up in the air and say, well, I give up. No. Darkness doesn't overcome the light. And John continues his narrative in this story by what God does. Verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. We know him as John the Baptist. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. So God responds to this darkness by sending both a light into the world and a prophet. In his prologue, John introduces who we know as John the Baptist, a man sent by God to witness to Jesus. And and we've heard about John before, right? At the end of November, we learned about John uh, John the Baptist, and he's the son of Zechariah and Elizabeth's boy in the Song of Zechariah. Well, someone testifying or giving evidence is a big theme in John. We'll see the word testify a, a number of times in his gospel. When we come to believe something that it is true and trustworthy, It's often because of the testimony of someone that we trust. And this is how many of us come to faith, with someone else's testimony. Perhaps your testimony has brought someone to faith. And we see this, that God works through people who testify to God's truth to communicate his desires to people. And we see this throughout the Bible, that God raises prophets and leaders such as Moses to tell us what God wants. And John the Baptist is one of these people. As John says, the true light was coming into the world. That light is Jesus, who's coming into the world we just celebrated last week and with these decorations on the stage. It's a curious habit that God has that 
instead of appearing in a blaze of lightning and roar of thunder, he chooses to work through people. Prophets, leaders, people who will testify to to God, to his will. And perhaps this is because if we see God in all his glory and thunder, we would just have no choice. We'd be overwhelmed. But the way God works is we do have that choice. And in the world of John, there are many people who accept that word and people who don't. Now, there are many people, even John's times, who claim to have words of power, just like today. We have a great abundance of words around us from people without any authority. Words seem to have gotten kind of cheap lately. It seems as if people will say anything and then see if someone gives it some attention, some, some power. If, we, if it's on social media, you know, see if someone will give it a like or maybe they'll share it with someone else. And it's my observation that it works, right? People can, you can post something and people will like it even if it's just wishful thinking, even if there's no facts or authority behind it. John the Baptist points to the true light. Well, John continues in his prologue in verse 10 with a recap and yet an addition. Again, a poetic way of phrasing this. Verse 10. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. These are perhaps the saddest verses in the entire Bible. You know, Jesus made the world. He is the potter. He owns the world, but the world rejects him. So John names this conflict between light and darkness. It's rejecting Jesus. And this is a story that John's gospel will tell. Jesus will demonstrate his power over the world, both physically and spiritually. And in the gospel of John, he will actually relate seven accounts of these miraculous signs performed by Jesus, a signs of his divinity and his ownership of the world. And these signs testify to who Jesus is. Now, poetically, with each of these signs, you can look at it on two different, two different levels. There's a level of what people see and happens, but then there's a more spiritual level that John relates in his gospel on what does this mean on a deeper level? For instance, in the first sign, turning water into wine, Jesus shows both a control over creation, you can transform something physically, and at a, at a deeper level, Jesus is saying that he is superior to all who have come before him. Save the best wine for last. Well, the seven signs in John are turning water into wine, there we go, healing of the official son, healing the lame man, feeding the 5,000, walking on water, healing the blind man, and raising Lazarus. And the next few weeks, we're going to be going into each one of these. That's what the, what the series is. And John will note with each of these signs, these miraculous demonstrations of Jesus' power and authority, that there are some who are convinced 
to follow Jesus. And yet there are others who instead listen to empty words of those without any real power. That's the conflict. And John notes that to those who did believe, Jesus gives them an important right. Verse 12, yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. Jesus is different. When we give power to people's words, we, we like them on social media, we give a type of glory to that person in their words. It's like when we, and when we like an influencer, we, 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 we get a good feeling, you know, it lasts briefly, that, hey, we're, we're part of this group that, that believes that or, or follows this person. However, when we receive Jesus, when we give his words power in our life, we receive that light to become children of God. And as a child of God, we gain an inheritance that will be permanently ours. That's, that's something to take home, isn't it? In the last few verses of his prologue, John unveils a number of things about Jesus, what he does for us, and he'll go into more detail later on. But he continues his poetic style by repeating a little bit from his previous description and then adding to it. And if we pay attention to this technique, it can help us understand the prologue better. When we see something that is repeated, look for something new that is near it. Well, in the verse 14, John repeats the idea that the word has become, has become human but then adds what John has witnessed about the word, about Jesus, the glory in his relationship with the Father. See, John now begins to expose, the, expose God's nature. Verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is actually John's first mention of Jesus Christ in his prologue. And this is, whoops, that's the next verse. But John's, this is the first time John has called Jesus the son of God and introducing his father. And John will speak, will speak of this relationship quite often. In fact, John will use the word father some 123 times in his gospel. John picks up again on the words of John the Baptist in verse 15. John testified concerning him. He cried out, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. See, Jesus surpassed John because he existed before John. As we saw, Jesus was there in the beginning. Well, John the Baptist is the herald, the one who announces the coming of a king, Jesus, our king. And the herald precedes the king. Now, John the Baptist had quite a following, and we even run into his followers a little bit later. Paul does when he's in the city of Ephesus in, chapter, in Acts chapter 19, if you want to look it up. So John, the writer of the gospel, wants to be clear 
on who John the Baptist is and his relationship to Jesus. John is the herald. In verse 16, John connects the old covenant of his people with his people with the new covenant that we have through Jesus. Verse 16. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. You see, John the Baptist is considered by many to be the last prophet of the Old Testament. And verses 16 and 17 mark the division between the old covenant of the law and the new covenant of grace that arrives with Jesus. God gave us grace through that Old Testament, but he gives us grace again through Jesus. And in verse 17, John finally mentions Jesus by name. Because in the preceding verses, right, John has been describing Jesus as the word, creator, light, the one who dwells among us, giver of grace and truth. Now in verse 17, we see Jesus' name. So finally, at the end, verse 18, John summarizes perhaps what is his main point. Verse 18, no one has ever seen God but the one and only Son, who himself is God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. Jesus, God's one and only Son, is God. Jesus is in the closest relationship with the Father and is the one who makes the Father known to all of us. Although through Jesus, who we have seen, we have seen God's essential nature and we know the God that we have not seen. So this is John's prologue. This is what he intends to write and flesh out later in his gospel. And John will poetically tell the story of a God who provides for us, a story of a God to whom we owe everything. But, I also, but it also tells a story of a world with a light that can guide us to God. But there is also darkness, which, although cannot overwhelm the light, requires us to choose the light over darkness. That's our choice. Do we tell the potter that he does not know what he's doing or that he knows nothing? Or we can acknowledge that we owe the potter everything. And that choice will be argued for in the rest of his gospel. So the question for us is who do we give, whose words do we give power to? To Jesus or those around us? I pray that we choose well. And although the people mentioned in John's gospel who are testifying are no longer alive, their witness is given to us in the Bible. But that's not all. As I said, Jesus is still our light. He has sent his spirit, the advocate, to testify to us about who Jesus is, even to those of us who exist today. We only need to listen to and accept that word within us. So I hope to see you all here next week, either in person or online, to learn more about Jesus and God and John's description of him. You know, Jesus taught us one, many things. 
And one thing that Jesus taught us was a particular way to remember him. We call it the Lord's Supper. Jesus knew of this conflict between light that he taught and the darkness that rejected him. And for those of us who have accepted Jesus, he taught us to eat and drink in, of, in memory of him until his return. So today, right now, we remember Jesus. It's a pleasure worshiping and honoring Jesus today. Today, rather than spend the day thinking about what you can do in your own power, look forward to 2023 with the confidence that Jesus is with you, that Jesus is leading you as the light of the world and the light of each and every one of us. And accept that. If we walk through Jesus, we'll never walk in darkness. And 2023 will be a fantastic year as we serve our Lord. So go forth. Bless the Lord, praise his name, and walk in the light of